everybody, and welcome to another episode, or as I would like to say, our premiere episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the Prairie podcast. I am your host, John Hernandez, and I thank you for joining me on this new weekly podcast journey where I work my way through the high grass melodrama that is Little House on the Prairie. Why am I calling this my premiere episode? Well, we finally made it to Walnut Grove. We finally made it to the actual beginning of the series here. I'm sorry. I really could have done without that whole pilot movie. It really brought nothing to our table here. We got introduced to the Ingalls family, and that was really all that it served. We met them. But we could have just met them very easily here as they finally showed up at Plum Creek, just outside of Walnut Grove, Minnesota. In addition to Walnut Grove, Minnesota is the location of many other towns and cities that have been made famous in movies and TVs, like beautiful Mount Rose, Minnesota in the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous. Aside from its namesake Fargo, 99% of that movie takes place in Minnesota, traveling from Minneapolis, Brainerd, and Moose Lake. But I think that we can all easily agree that its most famous location is St. Olaf birthplace to Rose Lindstrom, or as we all know her, Rose Nyland from the Golden Girls. Now the Ingalls take a very roundabout way of eventually making it to Walnut Grove here in the series. So we know that we they had left from Wisconsin, traveled through Minnesota, down through Iowa, Missouri, and eventually into Kansas. And in the process of leaving the prairie there, they head back up to Walnut Grove. Now it's never really mentioned why they head over to Walnut Grove, but that's where they do end up. Now I invested a little bit of time here to go ahead and try to figure out the mileage here. So um, using maps, I went ahead and discovered that from Independence, Kansas, all the way up to Walnut Grove, Minnesota, is about 635 miles. Again, that's using any sort of interstate or freeways, highways, byways, roads, whatever is available for ourselves. Now the Ingalls, maybe their route went a little bit farther because one, there's no GPS, two, there's no roads, and they most likely did not travel when the weather was less than desirable. Now imagine it, you are traveling by cover wagon for days, and all you see is grass. There's no radio. There's no tablet or electronic device to go ahead and keep yourself occupied. You had to have a conversation with the other people who you were traveling with. And I imagine that sounds like a nightmare to some people. But I digress. The point again was that they left Wisconsin so that they could head to Kansas and set up farmland. And uh, again, we know that didn't work out. And they head north, ending up in Walnut Grove. And using maps once again, found out that Walnut Grove and Pippin, Wisconsin are roughly 232 miles apart. Regardless, the Ingalls make it to Walnut Grove and we can really start this Little House on the Prairie podcast. Now, our first episode aired on September 11th, 1974, and was written by John Hawkins and directed by Michael Landon, and is titled A Harvest of Friends. Now, I hear this word harvest, and of course, it's in its use, it's being used as a noun in the process of gathering crops and whatnot. And oddly enough, looking up other words that are similar to harvest, words such as culling, and reaping also show up, um, which immediately then takes my mind from harvesting to slaughtering. And you can't make friends with people you slaughter. 
but you could make new friends out of those people you slaughtered, but that's not the same thing. A little bit of pre-show trivia here, and this is lifted from Allison Argren's and Melissa Anderson's books, was um, Michael Landon is apparently really short and does wear lifts in all these episodes. Um, so keep an eye out for his feet. Hal Burton, Michael Landon's stunt double, appears a few times as a citizen of Walnut Grove, in addition to being the other Charles Ingalls. And lastly, and this only came from Alison Argren's Confessions of a Prairie Bitch book, apparently Michael Landon, aka Charles Ingalls, went commando underneath his Charles Ingalls costume. Talk about method acting. This is the first time we get our iconic Little House on the Prairie opening. Cue David Rose's music. Charles Caroline show up in their wagon and the three kids are running down the hill. Now I'm wondering like, where is it that they came from? Are they returning from the store? Cause it's not that they're returning from the prairie every single episode here. Um, and, and why are the kids running? Were they, was it a race? Were Laura, Mary, and little Carrie running from Walnut Grove to see who could get home first? Which, if they're running from Walnut Grove, there is no way that little Carrie is that close behind everyone else. Like, she's still, like, maybe a mile away here. And then, of course, we get that comical scene of where she falls down every single time. And according to, once again, Allison Argren's Confessions of a Prairie Bitch book, is that the twins playing little Carrie, Lindsay, and Sydney, um, were swapped out at that moment. And the shoes were also swapped out, but the shoes were apparently placed on the wrong feet. Imagine running downhill on unlevel surface in tall prairie grass with your shoes on incorrectly. Anyone would be bound to fall, regardless of how old you are. The episode begins with Laura emerging from the dugout house they have just moved into. It's very Hobbit-like at this moment. It is a sod dugout house, very popular with the Norwegians in the area at that time. And we are greeted with another voiceover from Laura, in which she talks about if she had a remembrance book, she would surely write about the day they came to Plum Creek. We are introduced to Mr. Hansen, who is apparently the uh, owner of this farmland that Charles is in the middle of purchasing there. Um, in addition to that, he is also, Mr. Hansen is also the owner of the sawmill there, which Pa's going to go ahead and gather all the materials for making their new little house here at Plum Creek. Charles joins the rest of the family at the creek and soaking their feet before they move on in. Caroline has one final question, and that is, are we home? And with that winning smile, he assures us that they are home. This is also the first time that we get introduced to Charles Ingalls' iconic pinstriped blush and bashful button-up shirt. Or his pink and pink button-up shirt there. It's a character within itself, almost. We have more of Laura's voiceover about the construction of the house laid over a number of scenes of Charles gathering the material from Walnut Grove bringing it home with oxen and evenings constructing the house. And the next thing we know, the house is built. It's a beautiful house. Charles is the classic romantic there, picking up Caroline and carrying her across the threshold into the new house. The girls get their own room upstairs, and Laura's just ecstatic because they have their own window. Meanwhile, Caroline is letting us know that she has floors, 
She has glass pane windows to keep the bugs out. She has a room for the girls so that they have privacy. They have rooms for themselves so Charles and Caroline can have privacy. And they have a key to the front door, which means they now have access to security. Upon receiving the key to the front door, she replies, Now when I hear wolves, I won't be afraid. Really? Is it really the wolves that you're afraid of there, Caroline? Because I don't believe wolves know how to operate a door. But with the house complete, they can now set their focus on actual farming here. Caroline then replies that all we need now is a plow, a harrow, and seed, before taking a beat and yelling out, Carrie! as Carrie is trying to make her way upstairs to the girls' rooms. And this is what leads us to the introduction to Nels and Harriet Olsen, owners of the Olsen's Merchantile. Olsen's Merchantile, located right on the main strip of Walnut Grove. But then again, isn't everything? Charles heads inside the Merchantile, where he is greeted by Mr. Olsen, who then extends this introduction to his wife Harriet there. And of course, her smile is as effective as it could be. Charles then inquires about a line of credit, of course, for the supplies that he needs to get the farming going. And Nels is relatively nice about it. Now, he's not dismissing Charles at this time. He does have a reasoning. However, it's Harriet's long and drawn-out explanation that comes off... Well, it's off-putting, of course. We can't deny that. It is completely off-putting. And in a sense, it's just doubting Charles's character. And this is just the first moment that she has met this man. I love how this is our only glimpse of Harriet Olsen in this episode. We get this nice little tease, this glimpse of this cordial and condescending attitude. And of course, we want to see a little bit more. But Charles refuses to give up. He leaves the merchantile and heads down the street to the Walnut Grove feed and seed. He sees this brand new red plow that is just calling for him, but he also notices a roof that has fallen down, and he goes over and he assesses it a little bit, and the proprietor of the business, Liam O'Neill, comes down. The two of them work out this deal where Charles, for all the material that he needs to get the farm going, will fix the roof of the feed and seed and stack a number of heavy sacks um, within a three-week time frame. O'Neill is set to bring in all the materials for the construction. Now, the big pointer here is that if Charles does not complete all of this in the three weeks, he will lose his oxen. Roughly, he will not be able to farm. Mr. O'Neill has Charles sign a contract, and which makes me a little nervous because in my youth, Ursula the Sea Witch taught me that contracts are legal, binding, and completely unbreakable. The only way that Ariel got out of her contract was that Ursula was punctured in the heart with a ship. I don't think that's going to happen here, however. We cut back to Charles and Caroline back at the house having a conversation about everything that has just taken place. However, I also wanted to point out that the China Shepherdress is there in the background above the fireplace. The discussion that they're having here is essentially about time management, all right? So, we have Charles working six hours at the mill, six hours at the feed and seed. It's roughly two and a half miles to Walnut Grove from home and back. Plus, there's also eating and the farm work. And of course, Caroline does drop in the word sleeping at some point, too. And this whole cycle is supposed to last three weeks. Charles grabs Caroline's hand and assures her that he can do it. And Caroline responds back, 
believing him that he will be able to complete all this work. And so the challenge begins. The next part of the episode roughly goes about a day in the life of Charles over the next three weeks here. We have Charles coming inside from doing the morning chores, immediately heading out, not even taking time to sit down and have breakfast, because he has no time. In fact, he forgets his lunch and Laura has to go and run it after him. Charles is heading out to Walnut Grove and he comes across Doc Baker, who is having a little rim trouble with his wagon wheel. Charles, being the good-hearted man that he is, does stop and fixes the wheel for Doc Baker. Doc Baker, of course, is nice enough to give him a ride into Walnut Grove. Doc Baker relays that he has heard all about Charles, thanks to Mr. Hansen. Charles makes the comment about how word gets around fast, which Doc Baker then replies in a town like Walnut Grove, quicker than scat. It's nice to know that some words haven't gone out of play. We have a scene here with Hal Brooks being a Walnut Grove citizen and not the stunt double to Charles Ingalls. Charles is up working on the roof and slowly developing this sweaty bee on his shirt. Uh, bell rings and he goes from one side of town across the street to the other side and starts working at the mill. His sweaty V in the next scene is quadruple in size. Charles pours water on his head to cool himself down. Doc Baker is arriving at the mill with a crate full of chickens as a special thank you or an extra thank you for helping him out earlier in the day. So Charles assists with a rim job and Dr. Baker repays him with some cock later. You thought this was a family show. Charles is slightly reluctant to accept this payment of chickens from Dr. Baker, but Mr. Hansen comes out and encourages him to accept this as a gift. Um, what we have next is this lovely little banter between Dr. Baker and Mr. Hansen regarding watches, ages, and the correct telling of time here. And it, it all leads to this line where Doc Baker yells out, you and your watch are both older than I am, you! And then the whistle blows. We already know that Dr. Baker has kind of sworn earlier by using the word scat, so I can't help but wonder what other obscenities are able to come out of Dr. Baker's mouth that are being covered up by this whistle. The whistle is our transition from Walnut Grove all the way back to Plum Creek, where Caroline is then heading out to get the oxen variety for Charles. I also want to quickly point out the outhouse in the background there. We have a quick scene of the fields being worked, followed by a night scene where Charles is finally putting away the oxen for the evening. Once again, Laura gives us a reminder that if she had a remembrance book and what she would write down in it. Now, I guess I don't necessarily mind the voiceover. What I do mind is having to be reminded that if I was writing this down somewhere. Most of the time, when there is a voiceover in a TV series, I'm just under the impression that it's our narrator writing in the book, but not having to mention that it is a book, or it's just our inner monologue. However, we are now aware of the next three weeks for Charles Ingalls. Now, all these days of working eventually do lead us to the Lord's Day, where everyone is going to church. We get a close-up shot of Charles uh, adjusting his tie, getting ready for church, and then the next time we see him, he's out on the bed and well deserved actually. Caroline is nice enough to leave him there. And then we get our introduction to the Reverend Alden, who delivers a sermon to the people who are not in attendance. All of this is then completed up by everyone singing, come sinner, come. Mary and Laura have this quick little eye exchange as they are standing up. 
As they're returning home from church, Caroline is doing her best to defend Charles for not attending church because clearly this sermon is resonating with the girls a little bit. At this point, we also get a clear image of how short these dresses uh, Laura and Mary are wearing here. So they've had a little bit of growth since being out there on the prairie. And that's when they all spot Charles working in the field. In the word of Tyra Banks, Caroline is stomping to the death towards Charles and ready to give him a piece of her mind. To his defense, Charles simply replies, God understands farmers. We then cut to the spine of a Bible with Charles and Caroline in bed. Charles rolls over and starts to apologize for not attending church. And Caroline is more concerned that he is overworking himself, which is something she's already stated earlier in this episode. He assures her it's almost over and just to be patient a little bit longer. And Caroline closes out the scene by saying, time spent being angry at you is such a waste. The next day, we're back at the feeding scene. Hal is there once again throwing these bundles of grains onto the deck. Now, he seems to be having his left side face the deck here, which goes to suggest that he's just throwing it the same pattern here with his left side facing there. Now, I'm all about balance, so I would really like to see him throw the sacks with his right side facing the deck. So that way, again, he's maintaining balance. Regardless, the roof is done. And Charles gets the wonderful news that his lumber bill is now paid and he is now going to receive money from Mr. Hansen. And he also gets a job offer from him, but only to start once Charles has had a small break from these three weeks. Charles comes home, he's excited to share this news, but realizes that the house is very quiet. And Caroline informs him that she has sent the girls to bed because he's been a little grumpy the last few days. At which point, he goes upstairs and he wakes the girls and tells them this wonderful story about a grumpy farmer and his family. And it's at this point, the girls make eye contact and totally realize that this is about themselves. Through this story, Charles promises the girls a picnic the next day. And it's a wonderful little picnic. They're outside. Charles is flying a kite, which of course leads to the kite getting stuck in a tree. Um... And of course, Charles is so happy to be there, he's excited to be doing something other than work that he's going to go climb this tree and rescue the kite. And of course, that's where things go downhill. Or out of the tree, at least. Charles falls, or we should say Hal falls at this point, and is unconscious. And Caroline is definitely ahead of her time here. She's keeping her composure, but she's like pointing out Laura what to do. You need to get a hold of Doc Baker, and you need to get a hold of Mr. Hansen so we have a cart. So it's that equivalency of what to do in an emergency situation here. And off goes Laura, running to finish these tasks, and uh, we have our commercial break. What do we get in our very next scene? We get Michael Landon's left pack. He totally knew his audience when making this show. (laughs) Doc Baker's prognosis of the entire situation is four broken ribs and Charles must stay in bed with the binding, of course, to help keep those ribs in place. Now, four broken ribs, that's pretty terrible. I myself have had a really bad intercostal injury. And let me tell you, even lying in bed is a challenge. So, I mean, you can't roll over. Getting out of bed is such a task and you can't work like it's a no joke anything there with the ribs is no joke charles is of course still concerned about the work that has to be done at o'neill's and mr hansen steps in and says he's going to have a discussion with that and hopefully something comes from there so although the work at o'neill's is not being taken care of caroline is at home taking charge and she is the one who is working the field 
as well as taking, I guess, care of everything else around the house. Way to go, Caroline. So she comes in and she brings a meal for Charles and she's rubbing her shoulder and Charles voices his concern about Caroline doing this farm work. To which Caroline then uses Charles's own words against him where God understands farmers, then he must understand farmers' wives. We're out on the field again with Caroline and apparently that conversation that Mr. Hansen had with Mr. O'Neill, if it happened, didn't do anything because he is now there to collect. He brings the contract and shows it to Caroline and she's distraught because her oxen are now being led away. We then have this very heated exchange between Caroline and Charles, and although Caroline is upset, her main concern is that Charles stays in bed and actually recovers. But Charles is adamant about getting down to O'Neill's and discussing this out because he does not want a repeat of Kansas and where they lose everything. He leaves the house, and the girls follow behind. By the time Charles actually gets to Walnut Grove, He's already sweaty. You can tell he's putting a lot of effort just to get this far. And Laura and Mary are following behind, witnessing everything that is about to transpire. At Walnut Grove, we see Doc Baker having a conversation with the blacksmith. And the blacksmith's the one who points out that, hey, isn't that Charles Ingalls? And Doc Baker is slightly confused because he's the one who has told Charles to stay in bed and recover. At the feed and seed, Mr. O'Neill comments to how poorly Charles looks here, acknowledging the fact that yes, Charles is not in a good position, and still, he is unwilling to compromise. Charles reviews the contract and notes that he does still have a number of hours still available to him to complete this chore before losing the oxen. We get our long drawn out scene here of Charles slowly lifting up one bag and trying to place it on the very top of the pre-existing stacks, and of course, he tumbles and falls and we're overly concerned that he might have just hurt himself even more. And of course, the girls witness this and they run in and they try to take over the work themselves, the two of them trying to drag one bag across the floor and it's just not working. And that's when we see everyone who has been outside starting to gather closer and closer to the feed and seed and we have our little house on the prairie moment where everyone forms a human chain and works together to accomplish the task of putting all of these bags away, saving the Ingalls oxen from Mr. O'Neill. Mr. O'Neill, on the other hand, is acting like a total sleazeball at this time. He claims it was all a mistake, but too little, too late. Everyone just witnessed his behavior. In the process, nobody is talking to him, and he just turns tail and leaves, and I, I don't know if we ever get to see him again. Is the town going to eventually go ahead and boycott him and drive uh, Mr. O'Neill out of town? Pioneer cancel culture. As Charles and the girls are getting ready to lead the oxen back home, Doc Baker and Mr. Hansen come forth with a proposition of using the Ingalls land as a plow and harrowing contest that's being sponsored by the church there. But we all know it's actually an apology from Walnut Grove in regards to Mr. O'Neill's behavior there. Doc Baker and Mr. Hansen have another cute little banter back and forth, and then we have our final shot of Charles and the girls returning home with the oxen, and Caroline running out to meet them, and Laura's narration about Pa's unexpected crop and his harvest of friends. That's really sweet. It's almost too sweet for me, actually, but I, I really enjoyed this premiere episode of Little House on the Prairie. 
Before I rate this episode, let's go ahead and discuss some of the differences between here and the book on the banks of Plum Creek. In the book, they do show up to this house and they do meet a Mr. Hansen. However, uh, Mr. Hansen in the book, it's introduced and then immediately leaves once he has sold the property. Other than Mr. Hansen, not many other characters are introduced in On the Banks of Plum Creek until about halfway through that novel. In the meantime, we get chapters about hay, and horses, and fishing, and a footbridge. The book definitely picks up in the second half. There is one line that I can find in all of this text up to this point that does kind of um, apply to this Harvest of Friends episode. And, it, and the line is, I declare... Ma said, you're working that ground to death and killing yourself. So plenty of liberties taken with these books right off the bat, and that's, I'm okay with that. In the episode, as we start to witness everything that Charles has to partake in one day, I just couldn't help but think of my own dad at this time. Sometime after starting kindergarten, my dad once again started to play in a cover band on the weekend nights. And this, of course, was in addition to his 40-hour work week as well. So from Sunday morning to Thursday evening, he had his regular job there. And it was Friday night as well as Saturday night that he played in the band. Now, he would finish playing in the band Saturday, eventually make his way home around 1, maybe 1.30, and then have to be up by 6 in the morning to get himself ready to start work. And my dad continued to do that until at least my senior year. It was a few years after my dad had started this that I realized that the income that he was making from this band, he was actually sending back home to his mother in Mexico. It's those memories about my dad's character that I treasure the most. So all in all, I think I'm going to give Harvester Friends, our premiere episode of Little House on the Prairie, a solid five here. It it is actually way better of an introduction to the Ingalls family than the pilot movie ever was. We also got to increase our cast of characters, Doc Baker, Mr. Hansen, the Olsons, Reverend Olden. There were some great humorous moments, some wonderful heartfelt moments. You know, maybe there was one or two scenes that actually made you a little angry too, that Mr. O'Neill. So overall, I would say this is a really good first episode. So earlier in the episode, we do have that lovely banter moment between Doc Baker and Mr. Hansen, which eventually leads to Doc Baker yelling out some sort of obscenity before being edited with the whistle there. So my question is, what do you think Doc Baker is actually saying? Hmm? If you care to share what you feel Doc Baker is saying behind this whistle, please send me an email at fromplumcreekwithlove at gmail.com. And I guarantee you, I will not take offense to whatever you write. Or if you just feel like reaching out and sharing any sort of memories or thoughts you have about Little House on the Prairie, send those along too. I'd like to read that. Well, we've come to the end of this episode. So again, thank you for listening to From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm still your host, John Hernandez. And again, until next time, take care. Take care.